Welcome to Stand Forever, the podcast based on the truth that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Stand Forever originated from the First Baptist Church in Kearney, Missouri, just outside of Kansas City. Our teacher is Ken Parker, the church's senior pastor. There's no question the Apostle Paul was a force to be reckoned with. People inside the church recognize he was a key figure in the life of the early church, and what he said, he said with authority from God. Those outside the church wrongly attach negative labels to him because they don't understand biblical inspiration. We'll be learning from the Apostle Paul through his first letter to the Corinthians. The title of the series is Called to be Saints Together which is what Paul reminds the Corinthian church they were to be. Now for today's teaching, here's Ken. Should the gospel make a difference in how we live our lives each day? Should the gospel of Jesus make a difference in how we live our lives each day? Two cars were waiting at a stoplight. The light turned green, but the man in the front car didn't notice. The woman in the car behind him starts pounding on her steering wheel and yelling for the man to move. The man doesn't move, and the woman goes ballistic inside the car, ranting and raving and pounding on the steering wheel and the dash, and the light turns yellow, and the woman blows her horn even longer, gesturing with one finger and screaming curses at the man. The man, upon hearing the commotion, looks up, sees the yellow light, and accelerates through the intersection just as the light turns red. By now, the woman is absolutely beside herself, screaming in frustration at having missed her chance to pass through the intersection. As she is in mid-rant, she hears the tap on her window, and she turns to look into the barrel of a gun held by a very serious-looking policeman. He tells her to shut off the car while keeping both hands in sight. She complies, speechless at what is happening. After shutting off the engine, the policeman orders her to exit the car. With her hands up, she gets out and at his orders turns and places her hands on the car roof upon which the officer quickly handcuffs her and hustles her into the patrol car. Too bewildered by this chain of events to ask any questions, she is driven to the police station where she is fingerprinted, searched and booked, and placed in a cell. After a few hours, the policeman approaches her and opens the door for her. He escorts her back to the booking desk where the original officer is waiting with all of her personal belongings. After returning them, he says, I'm really sorry for the mistake, but you see, I pulled up behind your car as you were blowing your horn, gesturing with your finger and cussing a blue streak at the car in front of you. And when I noticed the what would Jesus do and follow me to Sunday school bumper sticker and the Choose Life license plate holder and the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk, I naturally assumed... You'd stolen the car. (laughs) Hopefully it gets better from here. (laughs) Should the gospel make a difference in how we live each day? 
Yes, it should. Last week, as we got to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we focused our attention on the gospel itself. Granted, we sought to make this clear, the, the gospel ought to always undergird all that we say and do and all that we stand for and so forth as people of God. But it's important sometimes to just talk about the gospel itself, what it is, the difference it makes, as well as the difference it will make for all of eternity. So we continue our series this morning, Called to be Saints Together. We're moving verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. We find ourselves today in chapter 15 one more time, and we're going to begin our reading with the first verse to demonstrate our respect to God for His Word to us. I'll invite you to stand as we read. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Thank you so much. You may be seated. When we were together last, we noted three things from the text. I'll take just a moment or two to review. First of all, we noted that we need a reminder of the gospel we talked about how Vince Lombardi once stood in front of the pro football team, the Green Bay Packers, and said, gentlemen, this is a football. And Paul was basically doing the same thing by calling the church back to the basics, even as Lombardi had called football players back to the basics. He was calling us back to the simple truth of the gospel. And we noted how churches that once started out being centered on the gospel allowed themselves to be sidetracked by a lot of other things rather than the main thing being their main attention. I told you that I'm not a fan of churches becoming six flags over Jesus, and we're not planning on doing bungee baptisms anytime soon. As I have often said, Jesus must always be the main attraction at our church. Then we noted the gospel is received or rejected. Everybody decides. Paul noted that he had preached the gospel to the Corinthians, and they in fact received it. To the point, everybody that hears the gospel must make a decision. We accept it or we reject it, but make no mistake about it. Everybody who hears the gospel decides. We noted our belief in the sovereignty of God as well as our belief in the free will of man and how these two things will exist in a theological tension that I don't think we'll ever fully unpack this side of heaven. Thirdly, we noted that the gospel is of first importance. We noted how all Scripture, every verse, is important, 
but then we said that you could make it to heaven without reading or understanding a proverb, but you can't get to heaven without responding positively to the gospel of Jesus. Thus, the gospel is of first importance. Christians can do without community gardens and civic clubs in the building and church softball. The church existed for centuries without camps and without parking lots and even, dare I say it, coffee makers. But remember, the church doesn't exist without the gospel. The gospel is 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now say this with me because this is the gospel. Say it together. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So let's deal quickly with two points this morning. First of all, the gospel has been validated as true. The gospel has been validated as true. Look with me, please, now, beginning with verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles." Often, critics of the church will often dismiss the claims of the gospel based on the fact that they are, in fact, so sort of otherworldly. It's supernatural what we believe. At some level, I get that. I mean, the concept of a dead man walking is, after all, a bit of a mystery. It certainly was to the ancients as well. But our faith, make no mistake about it, our faith is based on that reality. Christ died. Christ died and was raised from the dead. Here's the thing, without flinching, I'll be the first to say, I know, I know it takes faith to believe this. And then I'll quickly follow up by saying, isn't that the point? Isn't it about faith? If we see it all and everything makes sense and it's all tidy and completely acceptable, understandable, and presents no challenge whatsoever to the human intellect, then how can it be, let me appeal to the writer of Hebrews, how can it be then the substance of things hoped for or the evidence of things not seen? Paul, interestingly enough, wasn't worried about whether or not people believed the resurrection account. I mean, he wasn't worried in the sense that he felt like the truth of the resurrection would be weighed and later found wanting. What does he say? He says that Jesus appeared to Cephas, that is Simon Peter, and then to more than 500 brothers at one time, and most of them, he goes on to remind the people, most of them were still living. In other words, the people hearing Paul talk about the gospel would be free to go track down some eyewitnesses, those who were around to see Jesus after he had died and after he had been resurrected. And Paul wasn't the least bit worried that the story wouldn't be corroborated by those witnesses. That's how much he believed. And by the way, there's no record of any of those 500 denying the fact that Jesus died and came back from the dead. And that's how much we should believe. That's how confident we should be 
in our belief, in our view of the gospel story. Now listen, guys, I read the same anti-Christian literature that you are exposed to. I have people who bash my beliefs all the time, too. All of the experts, all of the supposedly intellectual elites, so many people bashing what we hold to be true. Do you know how much I worry about whether or not what I believe is true? Not a bit. Not a bit. I'm more confident in the truth of Jesus than I am that this platform won't collapse when I stand up here on top of it. And I stand here week after week after week. Do you know how often I've worried about this platform giving way? Never. Do you know how often I worry about whether or not the truth of Jesus is really true, what we believe? Never. My point in saying some of this is to remind you that if you have doubts, deal with them. Let me be very clear. I'm not ever going to bash anyone who ever comes to a place like this or sits in my office or sits in my living room, for that matter, expressing their doubts. But here's what I am going to say about it. If you have doubts, investigate the faith. Deal with your doubts. There's no inherent virtue in doubting. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that when we doubt, at some level, it's likely, notice I said likely, it's likely because we're not fully surrendered to Christ or we're not feeding our faith the way we should and instead we're acquiescing to the siren song of the world. If you listen, if you listen to that which is not true long enough, it might start to bother you. So be careful what you take in. Now, I'm not talking about, let me be clear, I'm not talking about why God did what He did or why He didn't do what He didn't do in answer to your prayer. I'm talking about the gospel itself. Do you, I'm setting you up now, okay, so get ready to respond, all right? Do you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? If you say you're a follower of Christ and you're walking around in doubt all the time, I'm telling you, you need to deal with that doubt. I'm not chastising you. In fact, I'm encouraging you. You'll, you'll never move further ahead in your relationship with God until you deal with the doubt. So, deal with it, please. Listen, I know the world is in chaos. <laughs> I, believe, I believe one day it won't be. I know that evil sometimes seems like it's winning. I know one day it won't be. I know that it appears right now as if righteousness is getting the short end of the stick. Listen to me. One day everything will be settled in justice and righteousness and all will be well, not just with the world, but with the entirety of the universe. That's the hope I cling to. That's the truth I believe. That's the implication of the gospel itself. Listen, Jesus came to fix this whole big mess. And he started doing that. But he's not quite finished yet. My friend Michael Fries said it this way. 
If you believe in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, you should be perpetually optimistic. Resting in God's authority and His goodness allows you to rise above the seeming chaos of the moment and look to the future with great hope and confidence. And all God's people said. Have you ever stopped to consider all the good that the Christian faith has done in the world? The hospitals? The orphanages? You never, you never see a hospital that was founded by atheists. You ever notice that? Christians that did all that. Hospitals, orphanages, the schools, the care centers, the nursing homes, the benevolent acts of Christians alone should make the world stand up and sing our praises. <laughs> but they're not doing that, are they? They don't. But look at all the good Christianity has done in the world. Why do you think so much good has been done? Because people believed the gospel. That's it. Every other faith, I know this is a broad statement, every other faith is a farce. It's fake. It won't measure up. Buddha is dead. You know this, right? The current Dalai Lama will be too. Joseph Smith got it wrong. Mary Baker Eddy was misguided. There's always a glitch to all of these other faiths. And when put to the test, every faith besides Christianity will, in fact, come up short. The heroes of their faith aren't perfect like our Jesus. In fact, they're poor substitutes for the real deal. Reminds me of a story you may have heard about the time Muhammad Ali was on a plane and the flight attendant told him he needed to put on his seatbelt. And Ali said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the flight attendant responded, Superman don't need no plane either. <laughs> Listen, Ali was a powerful man, but he was a poor substitute for Superman, right? All of the other spiritual gurus in the world might have been influential, but they're all, to the person, a poor substitute for Jesus. So the gospel has been validated as true. Secondly, and then we're finished. The gospel bore fruit in the lives of early believers. The gospel still bears fruit. Verse 8 and following. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The gospel bore fruit in the lives of early believers, and it still bears fruit. Paul now mentions that last of all, Jesus appeared to him as one untimely born. According to David Pryor, Paul is saying at least two things. First, his own encounter with the risen Jesus after the ascension is of equal validity and identical in nature to the others that he has just recorded. 
Secondly, once the risen Jesus had appeared to Paul, there were no further appearances of that nature. It's last of all. This speaks volumes about those claiming to have had a vision of Jesus. There may have been some supernatural experience, but in no way is that experience on par with Paul's experience of meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. In fact, as prior notes, the appearance of Paul was so unusual that the apostle calls himself one untimely born. The word refers to a miscarriage or an abortion. Apparently, the word was used as a term of abuse. Perhaps it had been hurled at Paul by his opponents. So imagine it this way. Rather than people saying Paul had been born again, his critics were saying that he was an abortion. He was not even fully born, much less born again. And Paul had to live with that. And I'm sure that at times he was overwhelmed with all of that, all of that criticism, but he was also overwhelmed at how the gospel of Jesus had transformed his life. Think about it. He went from killing Christians to being killed for believing the very same things they had believed. That's transformation. Listen, some of you guys have your critics too. People who have a hard time accepting the fact that you're striving to walk in the light. People may want to keep you down. They may hurl insults at you. They may question whether or not you've been born again. I want you to know, listen carefully, that in the economy of God, you are not defined by your worst moments. No, you're free from your worst moments in Christ. You name the sin. You name the sin. You name the group of sins, whatever it is they happen to be. And the blood of Christ, if you've repented and trusted in Jesus, the blood of Christ has written forgiven over all of them. (laughs) Men, that ought to make a Baptist shout. That's from your past. Forgiven. That's from your past. But listen, that's true in the present as well. Forgiven, that's also true. Look down the road, months, years, decades. Still, whatever it is you do, there it is, forgiven. That's the power of this gospel about which we've been talking. Listen, because of the resurrection of Jesus... Even the negative things that will come into your life long into the future, they're all under the blood of Christ already. They haven't even happened yet, and they're under the blood of Christ already. Even before you face them, Jesus has. (laughs) Nick Lannon wrote, Life is impossible, and that's good news. In the book, he tells the story of a young man taking karate, and he was doing an exhibition. He was going to hit a big concrete block with his hand and break it in two. Now, you can imagine, for those of you that have never done this sort of thing, and I certainly have never done this sort of thing, you can imagine how daunting a challenge that must be. 
I would suspect there's a bit of anxiety or doubt, maybe even a little bit of fear attached to that. The thought of breaking a concrete block with your hand. And the young man, Sensei, had written on the block. Are you ready? He had written on the block, congratulations, you did it, before the young man did anything. That's true with you into the future because of the resurrection. You're going to get to heaven. Listen to me. You're going to get to heaven just fine. Congratulations on your new home even before you get there. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the nature of belonging to a man who died and walked out of the grave. And that's what we believe. You've been listening to Stand Forever with Ken Parker. Thank you for taking the time to join us. If you'd like to correspond with us, feel free to email from the contact information found on our church website, www.carneyfbc.com or write to us at Stand Forever, 303 South Grove Street, Kearney, Missouri, 64060.